This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing a talk with Roshi Joan Halifax. Roshi has a new book out called Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. This is a beautiful book and a beautiful I won't call it an instructional manual, but it kind of is a great guide for the changing times, helping us to show up with these different states of altruism and empathy, integrity and respect and compassion. And through telling of her own personal stories and helping us to understand uh, the spiritual aspect of these principles... Uh, the book really just lays out a really nice foundation for moving forward in social action and being of service to others in the world today while caring for your own self and your own spiritual health. Uh, Roshi has such an interesting past. The book is filled with stories from her travels around the world in different social action and service and spiritual capacities and, and uh, getting a chance to speak with her about this and reflect on that time and this time was truly a treat. And I hope that you will enjoy listening to it. This, this book, Standing at the Edge, is the August book in the Shakti Summer Reading Series, so be sure to, to Grab a copy from the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com. There'll be a link there to purchase and grab your copy there. And join us in reading this book and sharing your thoughts and reflections with us on the Shakti Hour page at Facebook. Please do remember to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a positive review Thanks so much for listening, and now enjoy Roshi Joan Halifax. So give us a little bit of background, since this is your first visit to the Shakti Hour. I know you have a breadth of work and experience and knowledge from your past, but just maybe before we get into talking about your book, tell us a little bit about your evolution as a spiritual seeker and into teaching. I know that's hard to boil down to a few minutes, but... Just a little insight into that. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think I've been interested in spirituality since I was very young. Um, I was very sick when I was young, so it gave me a chance to develop a kind of relationship with my internal life. And also I had some people around me who were very inspiring, who took care of me. So that, you know, that was important. I think also, uh, since I was in my 20s in the 1960s, it was a time of um, many, you know, powerful teachers, but also exploring uh, social issues of relevance around uh, uh, war and sexuality and consciousness and relationship and the earth. So, you know, I was part of an, uh, a movement uh, that um, really, I, I think, became a kind of global movement around what it is to be awake and to be socially responsible. And um, I also had the opportunity at this time to meet Thich Nhat Hanh, um, a Buddhist teacher from Vietnam who uh, came to the United States and was against the war. And he um, de definitely... Uh, uh, influenced me because he brought together social action and um, meditation in a way that was very relevant for me. So, you know, I became a Zen practitioner and um, from the mid 60s until now, that's a long time, uh, you know, of doing Zazen and also being socially engaged. And part of my social engagement has been around addressing issues related to structural violence, that is, um, the treatment of women, uh, so-called minorities who are becoming more the majority, um, uh, people who uh, are economically challenged. Um, and uh, so this also included work in the end-of-life care field. And so maybe I'm best known for my work in the end-of-life care field. I've sat with many, many dying people and have trained caregivers from all over the world in compassionate care of the dying. Well, that was actually very succinct and covered the whole <laughs> span of that time. But I'm curious about why um, Zazen, why Zen was the thing that drew you in the most. Was it meeting Thich Nhat Hanh that, that pulled you into that practice? Did you dabble in other lineages or was that just the thing that pulled you first? Um, you know, I read D.T. Suzuki in the 1960s and there was a lot of interest in Zen because Alan Watts was so popular. Mm -hmm. And so when I had the opportunity to meet Thich Nhat Hanh um, uh, in a, you know, a, a context that was an anti-war demonstration, you know, it was very, it was a very significant encounter for me. I'm sure he didn't remember me. I became a student 20 years later, formally. But, um, you know, it was an opportunity for uh, me to engage in a practice that was about training my mind, opening my heart, and also a practice, Buddhism per se, which seemed profoundly practical and yet um, deeply transformative and transcendent. Hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, having encountered him on the soil here in America during that moment with his uh, practice to be able to offer that, you know, as a Vietnamese Buddhist in that moment. It must have been so profound to encounter that. Well, yeah. You know, actually, I, I didn't practice with him at that time. Um, you know, it was in a huge peace march. 
Um, so it was more that the um, co coincidence of social action and meditation. Already I was a meditation practitioner, albeit maybe not the greatest one in the world. Still am not. But, um, you know, that I realized that Buddhism could be involved in socially responsible activities. So you mentioned that you were sick as a child and you write about this in your book. Um, how, tell me about how that early experience has informed your life and your work and the seeking out of a spiritual practice to support it? Well, I, you know, um, when I was four years old, I lost my sight. And as a result of that, I realized I had an inner life. I also had imagination. And um, also, I spent a lot of time in solitude. I was really sick. And so as a result of that, um, you know, meditation and solitude came very naturally to me. And um, I think it, it was even more important in the 1960s where um, we were so polarized uh, against our government. And it was an opportunity, you know, I saw uh, in meditation for actually transforming uh, a, a quality of mind which was pretty outraged at the harm our government was doing. So I looked on meditation really as an experience of mind training. And I've been doing it ever since. Right. And you had this um, understanding, this cellular experience, this cellular memory, whether however conscious or not from your young life, that there, there was an inner place to go to, to manage suffering or to look from a different vantage point. And so um, it just seems to me so potent, these early moments or these moments along our, our path that actually are the seeds for our, our later seeking, for our, our, our destiny, let's say, of, I don't know, what's your, do you have any <laughs> reflections on that as your path is unfolded through your life? Because you have such a deep sensitivity, you know, the, the, the story you tell in here about being, uh, getting confronted, I believe you were in Africa, the man comes up to the van and you're alone, you're an anthropologist, and you have that moment of being able to do that seeing with him. It just seems to right. me like there's something innate in your capacity in addition to all the work and the practice and the service that you've done? Well, you know, I, I think that um, uh, I, I was fortunate to be raised by a loving family. I was fortunate to, when I became so ill, to have good support. And also, you know, there's the timing of being born at in an era when, uh, you know, consciousness and social responsibility were of interest to all of us young people. And we got into it, and it was great. And um, I don't know if I'm more sensitive than anybody else. I doubt it. I think it's just that um, I might have, uh, I might be slightly less risk averse than some people. And as a result of that, I've explored uh, many different things uh, fairly um, uh, deeply. Um, 
uh, you know, meditation being really the most important, but also, um, you know, mortality, the issues around my own mortality and the mortality of others, um, issues related to how do we actually care for people? How do we care for people in a way that doesn't destroy us? So, you know, this book that uh, you re reference is a book I think is really important for this time because there's so many of us are out there, you know, doing the best that we can as educators and clinicians and as mothers and really um, uh, politicians, human rights workers, um, people in business, trying to, you know, live in a principled and loving way. And so my... Um, uh, impetus to write the book was, you know, based on having borne witness to the testimony of so many men and women as they uh, encounter difficulties um, in the work of service to others, and also my own experience as well. So, you, you know, you talk about uh, a piece in the book that I wrote about when I drove across the Sahara Desert and um, was at the uh, Algerian-Malian border and where I was, you know, in a very vulnerable situation, but was able to somehow connect um, through cultural differences um, with an individual who could have harmed me but end up letting me go. And, um, you know, I have a very strong memory of it because I had, you know, it was a very visceral experience. It was like, oh, this is really scary. But at the time it's happening, you don't even have that much of a script in your head. But in retrospect, you realize, you know, I could have been raped or killed or anything. And yet, you know, somehow um, my fearlessness uh, and care in that situation produced the outcome where I was able to actually um, uh, meet and uh, be blessed and released. Yeah, so I... I that's a, um, I think my life is, you know, I'm very comfortable in difficult situations. Partly I'm 76 now, so, you know, I have had a lot of experience in unusual situations over the past decades. And partly because, uh, you know, I didn't not take advantage of uh, the opportunities that were presented to me to learn and to try things out. Yeah, that's that's definitely what comes through. You know, in the in the beginning of the the book, you write, "The edge states are where great potential resides, and working skillfully within these states, understanding can be quickened." Yet, edge edge states are a fickle territory, and things can go in any direction: free fall or solid ground, water or sand, mud or lotus. So that, yeah. that is your, that's to me, and not knowing you, knowing you through your work, not knowing you yet as a person, that to me is the essence of your teaching. Well, yeah, I, learning the hard way, maybe. <laughs> but that willingness to, to risk and engage the inner life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I, I you know, um, the inner life is so rich, but so also is the life of service, and they're connected. Hmm. Um, you write, you you share this poem by Joseph Bruchuk about the yeah. 
the deep, humble sensibility. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but... Oh, you should. Okay, I'll read it. Okay, I'll read it. Birdfoot's grandpa. The old man must have stopped our car two dozen times to climb out and gather into his hands the small toads blinded by our lights and leaping live drops of rain. The rain was falling, a mist about his white hair, and I kept saying, you can't save them all. Accept it. Get back in. We've got places to go. But the leathery hands full of wet brown life, knee-deep in the summer roadside grass, he just smiled and said, they have places to go, too. Mm. Don't you love that? It's beautiful. And you, you cite him as a living example of bodhisattva. Yeah. There was a there was an image of a uh, during the Ojai fires just last December. There was a a viral video of some guy who was out trying to get this this deer. No, it was running. a bunny. Oh, it was a bunny. Oh God, right, a bunny doing that same thing. So speak about that. I mean, altruism is the first kind of edge state that you talk about in the book. Speak about that a little bit as you see it unfolding for us today. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, altruism is that deep concern we have for others and the um, concern followed by the desire to actually, you know, be of service to others. And I don't think any of us would be alive if it weren't for the altruism of our parents. It's a very important human quality. It's, um, you know, socially and psychologically uh, deeply inspiring. And it's, uh, it's one of those essential uh, human virtues that really brings life into life um, in, a, in a very unusual way. But when we're overly altruistic to the point where we're harming ourselves physically or mentally, um, then uh, we've got a situation that social psychologists have called pathological altruism. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, so many uh, women have talked to me about this very issue, you know, suffering from pathological altruism where they, you know, are sacrificing themselves on the altar of, you know, what they presume to be super goodness, but actually causes harm to themselves, could cause harm to the people they're trying to serve, including their own children. Cause could cause harm to the institutions that they're part of or that they're endeavoring to serve. So it's, I think it's really, you know, this is a powerful chapter about, it's a big section in the book, and it, it, it really goes deep into the importance of altruism, different kinds of altruists, people like Nicholas Winton or Malala. I, you know, I talked about all these uh, different wonderful people who have, been a source of inspiration for all of us. But at the same time, um, it's also to uh, understand that we should be cautioned about uh, doing things that end up harming ourselves or even potentially harming the people we're trying to serve. What, what does it look like to be cautioned or how, how do we caution ourselves? <laughs> it's becoming more mindful. And, you know, uh, more mindful is being much uh, having mental stability, attentional stability, so that we can really see things accurately and to understand um, things from a pro-social perspective 
That is that um, if we harm ourselves, um, that doesn't do anything for the world. Hmm. That, you know, we're here to serve others to be a benefit. And so, you know, um, it's understanding our motivation very clearly. And it's being deeply self-attuned. It's being able to understand, you know, what our physical response is. You know, if we work ourselves to the bone and we become exhausted, um, it's, you know, we're damaging the body. We're ignoring the body. Or we are um, empathically over-aroused and um, uh, uh, don't have good boundaries. Um, you know, then we can be disabled ourselves hmm. and so on and so forth. So the a big subject you know we can't cover it in this you know short interview but um read the book because i think the book is really an important book in this day and age actually um because you know we want to be good in the world and do good in the world but also we need to be healthy and we need to be balanced and so this book is a deep exploration of the role of compassion in helping us maintain balance in the world hmm. And you do lay it out so clearly in the book, um, in both philosophical, psychological, and spiritual terms, and then in practicality, which I think is so helpful um, to take pause from whatever you're engaged in, to look on those various levels, the way that you, you know, have placed it in this book for us to take pause and to be able to have some kind of reference point to do that inquiry or to do that self-examination. And um, I'm curious about, you you write about it in the book, but I'm curious about your reflections on how that inquiry into your service life has changed over time for you. I mean, it, it must be kind of second nature for you now, or do you still take moments and really sit and go through that reflection? Well, I hope I reflect a lot, actually. <laughs> you know, I mean, I do meditation practice for, you know, several hours at least every day. And also I try to slow down my own processing mechanism, my own thinking, mm-hmm. um, my own you know, sort of impulsivity so that I can be, you know, measured and thoughtful and concerned and discerning in how I respond to people. I'm not perfect. I try. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, and you were, you know, you were talking about giving and even giving motherhood, and I was thinking just about the different stages of motherhood and how the, the need, the altruistic need shifts over time and how that, it's like a classic example of the the mother who's still giving to the it's a different there's a different need but the mother is giving to the adult child in the way that they were trying to fill that that need so can you speak about how the altruistic need shifts in a situation i mean you kind of talk about that on the edge state of altruism when maybe i'm giving maybe help is becoming a four letter word here maybe i'm giving out of a projection rather than the actual situation that's arising before me. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to think about grandmother's heart. That's what we call it in Zen. It's a kind of loving wisdom. Um, uh, and that's, that has a lot of patience 
to it and generosity and is selflessly motivated. You know, these are the paramitas in Buddhism um, the, that point to, you know, um, uh, our capacity to, to be compassionate. So, you know, I think um, uh, I think maturation, failure, difficulties, learning, uh, uh, the willingness to be wrong, to take responsibility, um, to uh, also build loving relationship, but relationships which are um, characterized by a lot of honesty. Um, yeah, these are qualities I think are important, but I also think it's important that one, you know, has the discipline to actually stop and to uh, notice whatever our subjectivity is and to also to see our intersubjectivity, to understand that we're really connected to every being and thing we're not separate from. And so, you know, it's, it's out of that that this kind of boundless love arises. So this boundless love <laughs> that arises, you know, speaking from my own experience as a spiritual student, practitioner, over the course of years, initially service or seva, was an action I was taking as a, an act to create a certain result inside of myself, right? I knew that if I showed up to the food pantry, it would help me get out of my head and into a better state, a state of love. Then over time, practicing more, more, more work, more meditative practice, more self-inquiry, it became a naturally arising desire to help, to serve, to, to be in that place. It felt um, imperative in a way that was uh, beyond my teenage years where it was imperative to you know, change the world because the world was wrong. It just was calling out of me. And so what do you see the... Is there, is there value just in the practice of service? Um, or, or is it is the value to invest your energy more in practice until the natural desire for service arises? No, I think we should do whatever we can do. Yeah. And suffering that we don't win. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But it, is, there, it, is there... Is you know, your 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 and your path. It seems, you know, just from reading your book, it seems like the two were kind of co-arising. Your practice and your service were kind of arising in this in yeah, a, in a they, parallel they realm. Sort of happened at the same time, but you know, I think um, I didn't really have a practice till I was in my mid twenties, and I think I was involved in you know service, or I had this kind of deep sort of aspiration to serve other people from, you know, a very young age. Yeah, I met so many kids who are like me. I mean, it, it's not just, you know, uh, that this is unique. This is more um, one of these. I, I just met a ton of young people. I mean, like kids, little kids, 
mm. who are out there doing great stuff. You know, they're mm. they're protesting the the Flint, Michigan mm. clean, you know, dirty water situation, the lead in the water situation. Mm. They're pro. They're with their mm. parents as their parents are protesting the uh, family separations. Um, Afro-American kids who are deeply involved, you know, and really behind Black Lives Matter. I mean, wow, it's a very exciting time. I mean, I've seen some very awake kids. I'm not talking about young people. I'm talking about, you know, really young kids. Yeah. Right. So no need to send them off to the the monastery for a few years before they can engage. Well, they want to go. That's fine. <laughs> right, 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 right. But so, but the, but the, um, you know, there comes a point, I mean, and I guess that's what this book is, is offering where you can take that pause and integrate a deeper practice into what you're doing to sustain it basically, or to make it more robust in its effectiveness or in holding you and the other person or. You know, I think I, I love the three treasures or the three jewels of Buddhism, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. I mean, Buddha is talking about the, you know, the Buddha himself, but also the Buddha nature in every being. And also, you know, what it is to have a good teacher like, for example, your teacher Ramdas, or my teacher Bernie Glassman, or Thich Nhat Hanh, or the Dalai Lama, or Malala, who's very young. You know, these are, are people who, you know, are in a way, are, are we're so fortunate to have mm. wonderful teachers in our lives. You know, some of us are teachers. I'm a teacher for many people. So, you know, I have a lot of responsibility, but also... Um, you know, there's also Dharma, and that is, you know, how do we develop the quality of heart and mind where we can see things realistically? So Dharma is the ocean of mm. wisdom and compassion. That's what I say. It, it means being, you know, really in this present moment, but it's uh, this great ocean of wisdom and mm. compassion. And Dharma and is the ocean is, of wisdom and compassion. That's beautiful. Yeah. And Sangha, um, uh, is that, you know, the Buddha wrote about, wrote about the fourfold sangha of uh, monks and nuns, lay men, lay women, but also everything is practicing with us. Mm -hmm. um, and that is just one of the most uh, amazing realizations for us to um, uh, become cognizant of, that um, the sky is practicing with us, the ocean is practicing with us. Mm -hmm. Um, all the trees, mm. even the sidewalks are practicing with us. Mm. So, you know, um, that's, anyway, that's kind of where I live. Since this is the Shakti Hour, and and um, part of what we do here is ask people to give a specific piece of advice to women and girls on the spiritual path, I'm offering that to you as we as we wrap up. Oh, thank you. Gosh, you know, one of the things I don't do is give advice, but I want to give encouragement. Um, and, you know, my encouragement is to uh, give no fear. And by giving no fear, it is to, you know, wake up to the just the gift of this life, no matter how difficult 
um, the situation is. Um, it's an opportunity for us to learn and to also turn um, what we've learned in a good way back uh, in service to others. So that's what my, my, my kind of rubric is, you know, that's sort of my guide, mm. internal guide. How can I take what I've been given, even if it's difficult, transform it through compassion and turn it back toward the world in a way that engenders goodness? Yeah. Fantastic. Give no fear. And uh, we'll have all the links to Standing on the Edge on the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com. Thank you. Thank you, Joan, for your time. And I hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of your week up in the mountains. Thank you so much, Melanie. It was great to connect with you. Great heart to you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.